Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Actus Podcast, a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. I'm Linnea Archibald, the Associate Editorial Director for Actus, and I will be your host for today's show, which is part of our Leadership with Linnea series. In every episode of this series, I'll be joined by one guest from the Actus Leadership Council ranks or a contributor from one of our Actus publications to discuss a topic relevant to leaders in the industry, whether or not they currently hold a traditional management title. I'm thrilled to be joined by Karen Elmore, RN, BSN, CCDS, who is the Education Program Manager for Physicians and CDI at BJC Healthcare in St. Louis, Missouri, to discuss denials, appeals, and organizational clinical criteria. Karen focuses on CDI education for CDI specialists, physicians, coders, and ancillary staff, prepares orientation for CDI providers, physician champions, and physician advisors, leads the CDI preceptor counsel, reviews clinical insurance denials, and mediates mismatches between CDI staff and coders. She is a member of the Actus Chapter Advisory Committee, the Actus Leadership Council, and was a member of the 2022-2023 to Actus Leadership Council Mastermind. She also is a co-lead of the Kansas City Actus Chapter, and she is the co-leader and founder of the Missouri Actus Chapter and the annual Show Me State Actus Chapter Conference. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that the Actus Podcast continues to offer 0.5 Actus CEUs for the first two days after publication. Those credits can be used toward your CCDS or CCDSO recertification requirements. We will share the instructions at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that. And now, before we jump into my conversation with Karen, a brief word about today's sponsor. The Actus team invites you to discover what's on the horizon for CDI at our 16th annual conference, which will take place April 8th through 11th in Indianapolis. You'll find sessions for all experience levels and backgrounds in each of our five tracks for 2024, which are Clinical Encoding, a much-loved conference staple examining core clinical encoding components vital to those engaged in record reviews, Professional Development and Collaboration, which invites attendees to expand their professional skills, deepen leadership acumen, and explore opportunities to collaborate with other departments, Quality and Regulatory, which highlights the ways regulatory initiatives affect CDI practices and the ways programs are meeting new challenges by examining how documentation impacts quality of care outcomes. Program Development and Denials Management, which will offer ways to ensure your program keeps pace with the evolving CDI landscape and teaches strategies for combating denials. And Innovation and Expansion, where attendees will discover cutting-edge advancements, including non-traditional settings, technology and analytics, outpatient CDI, and pediatrics. The 2024 Actus Conference features fresh insights, empowering keynotes, and ample networking opportunities. Reignite your passion for the profession and return to your organization ready to implement creative and innovative new strategies. Register by February 5th and receive the early bird discount of $100 off your ticket. Learn more and sign up by using the link in today's show notes. And now back to the show. So thanks so much for joining me today, Karen, particularly to discuss a topic that we get so many questions about here at Actus, and that, of course, is denials, appeals, and organizational criteria. 
So to just kick us off, I know that you spoke a bit about this topic at the 2023 CDI Leadership Exchange back in October, but for our listeners, of course, most people were not at that event. Could you tell us about your approach to how your approach to denials kind of used to look before you jumped into this project? Sure. Good morning, Lene. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. When we started first doing denials uh, back in 2016 is whenever I started doing them because I came to my job that I'm doing now. And we would just get a few denials here and there, just like one or two coding would send them to us. Uh, and then they would say, would you take a look at this and see what you think? Give your opinion. So we would do that. And we would, I mean, there was, there was so little that we would get. And then as the years started going on, we started getting more and more and more. And then it was like, oh my goodness, why are we getting so many denials? And so in 2017, we thought we've got to start doing something different because our denials are starting to pile up. Used to, we would have, you know, just like I said, two or three a month, um, maybe a total of, you know, six or seven, maybe on a really busy, busy time. But then all of a sudden, they just started coming in, rolling in 30 a month. And it's like, my gosh, what are we going to do? And so we started looking around thinking, what can we do to help our program and make sure that we have enough meat and potatoes, if you will, to be able to support the documentation that we have in the record that supports that diagnosis. So if we have um, acute respiratory failure, for instance, in the SATs are all above 90, the patient's on room air, uh, you really can't support that. <laughs> so we need to make sure that we have the, the bulk of documentation, that good documentation. And then we also need to have a guideline that says, this is what we need in order to support said diagnosis. And so we need to get that information out to the providers and to the CDS as well. So that's kind of how all this started coming about. Yeah, that's great. And I, I'm guessing that this is partly you answered this just because like the volume of the denials went so drastically up over a relatively short period of time. But was that the main catalyst for kind of changing your approach? And what first steps did you take? And this is such like a massive undertaking. And so I'd really just love to know a little bit about how you even chose where to start. Yeah, it was it was two parts. One, that we were getting so many more denials. And two, that when we were looking at those denials, we didn't have anything to back up that diagnosis. So we were having just to say, yeah, you're right. We don't have the documentation to support the diagnosis and we're gonna have to accept and you know send you back a check um, to the insurance company. And you know, it was one of those things that was like, wow, you know, we're we're sending back a little more money. A little more revenue than what we want to. Um, we never want to send back any kind of revenue. We want to keep that, you know, because the the physicians, the nurses, everybody works hard to take care of those patients. So we need to make sure that we 
show in our documentation that we really do take care of sick patients. So we need to make sure that we have that robust, that precise documentation in our records. So there was going to be a lot of education that we do during this, this time. And if we do all this education and we go out and we say, this is what we need, this is what we want, but then we don't have any things for the physicians and the CDS, the providers to fall back on to say, what did she tell me, you know, two months ago, then they're going to fall back into the ways that they were doing before. And it's hard to break those habits. So um, we developed this digital clinical guideline and we wanted it to be digital because we did not want paper copies floating out there. People, you know, printing things off that back in 2005, it was this, but now due to the coding changes and things like that, CMS changes, now it's, you know, 2024 and 2024 does not match 2005. We wanted to make sure that we had all the data in this digital copy of our clinical guideline for the physicians and the providers and the CDS to refer back to, because it's hard to remember all of that stuff because you're taught one way in nursing school, in PA school, in nurse practitioner school, and in med school, but CMS kind of thinks a different way. So that's what we were trying to come up with. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I feel like I can barely remember what I did yesterday. So like, (laughs) if you're asking me to remember this complex list of criteria uh, that I saw once three months ago, uh, that probably would not go super well. Um, (laughs) So I think having that resource is probably extremely helpful when people have a lot on their plates already. Exactly. And then we had to have that digital resource put in a in a safe spot where everybody knew where to get to it. Absolutely. And I it, this is the clinical guidelines piece of the denials management conversation is something we get questions about so frequently. <laughs> and it's such a beast of a project <laughs> to undertake. So could you talk us through that process that you went through to even develop those guidelines? How did you choose which diagnoses you were going to focus on? And then I know you said you distributed them digitally, but how did you make sure providers knew where to find them and you know knew that they should be using them <laughs> to a certain extent? Great questions. Great questions. So um, we looked at our denials because we weren't even keeping data for our denials saying, you know, this was the diagnosis that was being denied or anything like that. So we had to start keeping that information because we had no idea. I mean, we could we could try to go back and find those emails that got sent to us, but they might be here and they might be there. And maybe it went to one second level reviewer or another second level reviewer. So you never knew where they were in it, where they were going to go. So one, we developed a, a mailbox just for those denials to go into. And we're talking about the DRG downgrades or the validation denials. There's other denials that compliance, uh, go, uh, compliance works with and they take care of those. But on my end, we take care of the any kind of like CC or MCC, so possibly a DRG downgrade or a 
clinical validation denial. So we started keeping data to say, okay, this is what we're getting now. We, when we, we came out with the spreadsheet and I really loathe Excel. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm, I, I have problems working with that. It's just so hard, but if we wouldn't have had Excel to be able to keep all of our data on, I'm not sure where we would be. So I kind of like Excel just a little bit from that sense. But um, so we started keeping all of our information and then we were seeing, oh my gosh, we're getting so many sepsis denials. Oh my goodness, we're getting so many respiratory failure denials or AKI or, you know, encephalopathy. So that's kind of where we started. We said, okay, sepsis is our number one denial. Let's start with that. So it took us, we, we got, we had to go then, I'm going to back up a little bit. We had to go find our subject matter experts because we have to have physicians involved in this as well. We can't just say, well, Karen Elmore thinks that these are the criteria that we're going to use, or, you know, one of my teammates thinks this is the criteria we should use. We had to get industry standard criteria. And we were lucky enough to have a surviving sepsis physician that is works at Washington uh, University, which is part of BJC Healthcare. And she helped us develop this guideline. And then, so we developed a team and we, we didn't want our team too huge because if you get too many people in there, it can just make everything go topsy-turvy. So we did not want that. We wanted to make sure that we had a, a good size team, but very still intimate enough where we could get not too many cooks in there. So we had um, I believe there was three physicians and one of the ones, like I said, was leading was a, an original member of surviving sepsis. And then we had several CDS. We had coding on the team. We had compliance on the team. And I believe that was it from our team. And then um, we started meeting and we have one team member that really took this on one of my uh, peers and she was just amazing how much time and effort she put into this besides doing her other job. <laughs> so she started working with the physicians and then she would bring back to the other sub team. Here's what we've got. Here's what we're going with. And then once everything was tied up in a pretty bow, which took 14 months to get to get our sepsis clinical guideline written. Now, since we've done that, none of the other ones have taken even a fraction of that amount of time. But we knew sepsis was going to be the hardest one because some people go with sepsis three criteria. Some people go with SERS criteria. You know, what should we go with? And we went with what CMS did. CMS goes with sepsis or I'm sorry, SERS criteria with a source of infection. That's what we did. So two out of the four SERS criteria plus a source of infection. But that baby, we named her sepsis. She was born on um, December of 2018, I believe it was, or March of 2018. Now I'm can't, I, I can't remember my for sure of uh, date, but um, it was, I'll tell you right now, it was March of 2019. Sorry, it was March of 2019 when sepsis was born. And we started 
getting the information out there. Actually, before our little girl named Sepsis was born, we went out there and we made sure that we started telling physicians, hey, we've got an elevator speech. Hey, we've got a new guideline book and we want to talk to you about it. We want to tell you about it. And so in hospitalist meetings, in intensivist meetings, in the medical executive committee meetings, any kind of meeting that we could go into, any kind of newsletters that went out, we started promoting our clinical guidelines. Coming soon, coming soon. And we also decided we got, we had to have a place to house this clinical guideline. So we put that in our EPIC EMR. We thought, where is everybody going to be? Where is someone always going to be at the same time together? And it's going to be EPIC. So we got it posted in EPIC. Very easy place to find physicians, providers, nurses, whoever can go up, anybody can click on the link at the top and it will take them right into clinical guidelines. And then we even made hyperlinks within the guideline that you can click on and it will take you right to that page. So you don't have to scroll and scroll and scroll. So our person who took all this care and, and developed this is amazing. And still she's our lead on, on, uh, the clinical guidelines. And this is just, I mean, she has done so much work on this over the last, what is it going to be now? Four years. So we've just, and we've got, oh gosh, how many guidelines do we have? 28, I believe. I can't remember for sure, but we've got, we've got a lot of, of guidelines and we've got um, pediatric and we're going to be working on OB and um, moms and babies for the OB staff will be working on as well. That's so impressive. That's a lot of work you've done in the last few years. <laughs> that is a massive undertaking. I'm just a committee member, Linnea. Our person who really did the work, I just get to, I just get to, you know, promote her and and say what a great job she did. Um, I'm not going to give her name out there because I don't <laughs> want anybody coming in stealing her. Um, yes, but- keep her close. <laughs> I'm going to keep her close. <laughs> I love that. You've sort of touched on this, but obviously being involved in the denials and appeals process is a huge amount of work and CDI already does a million things, it feels like. So how are you kind of balancing that work for your team there? I know you you talked about all the multidisciplinary um, groups who are involved in the in the criteria building and all of that, but what about for your team? For my team, there are six of us on the community side, two in the pediatric realm, and five on the academic side that all work in the denials um, section, the the denials mailbox. And not all of us, there's only... um, two representatives from the community side, one from the um, academic side and one from the pediatric side that are involved with the clinical guidelines um, in, in making them and doing that kind of thing. We actually have two frontline CDS who help develop the clinical guidelines as well. We have a, a team for that and they are amazing. They, they get out and do so much so much legwork 
Um, and then, you know, once the clinical guideline is developed, we, we talked with our subject matter experts, the, the CDS have written them. Um, then we take that information to the physician champions and to our coding partners, and they go through it and make sure that everything is exactly where it needs to be and that all our T's are crossed and our I's are dotted and we haven't left anything out or forgotten anything, especially the coding group is so important because they're like, wait a minute, there's a coding clinic and and they'll go through and like, oh gosh, darn, we forgot about that one. So um, if you didn't have all of these members, it would just be, it would, I, I don't know how we would do it. Um, because, you know, you can't just leave this to a couple of people to do. Um, the people that work the denials mailbox, I mean, and there's one day we were on a meeting and I looked, just glanced at the denials mailbox and all of a sudden we had 75 denials that had just dropped in. And we were like, oh my gosh. And some were rack denials and some were, most of them were non-rack, but there was a few rack denials too. And that included, you know, our children's hospital, our academic, and all of our um, uh, community-based hospitals. So, you know, if, it, if we didn't have all of the people that work on them, the, the five from the academic, the two from the pediatrics, and the, the six from the community side, we would have been hurting. <laughs> so you have to, and, and our director actually went to administration and said, we do need some more staff to help us and and took our data that we had been collecting showing how much more our denials were coming through how many more we were getting we've increased our denials from 2016 to um 2023 and that was november of 2023 i haven't seen the december data come out yet but we've increased our numbers from 2018 to 2023 by 178%. We went from 20 or 834 to 2319. Oh my goodness. That's Isn't that crazy? crazy? <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. That makes me tired thinking about it, to be honest with you. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I don't know how you do that without all those people involved. You, you have right. to have that big team. Um, and I, kind of connected to this is obviously appeal letters are a big beast. So what approach are you taking to those? Are you using templates? And if so, did you develop those kind of in tandem with your criteria development? Yes, we do have our response templates. We only have a few um, and that we have sepsis, malnutrition, AKI, respiratory failure, and then we have a general one and that we can, you know, uh, type in what diagnosis that we're defending. And so we have these templates and they're very nice. Once again, our, our guru who started with the, with the guidelines from ground zero is the one who developed the templates as well. And it's so easy just to plug things in those templates saying, you know, here's what we've got. And then we're, we're all very uniform. We're using the same, verbiage to get back to the um, insurance companies. That's great. That feels like a, a sensible approach. As sensible as you can be with these denials, because I feel like it's very maddening. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They are maddening. But you know what? It's kind of a, a fun thing because it's like you're a detective because you're going through to see what's 
what you can find. And, um, and then almost, I don't know why, but I kind of feel like I'm taking this personally too. It's like, Oh no, <laughs> you're not taking that back. Nope, nope, nope. No take backs, no take backs. <laughs> <laughs> And I go in blazing saying, I'm going to, I'm going to defend this denial. Now there is, you know, that occasion, I think this year so far we have, um, we've had to accept 29% of the, um, denials that have come through, but you know, 71% were defending, which is just amazing compared to when we first started keeping track of our numbers, um, in 2018, we had, uh, 43% that we were accepting. Mm. So to go from 43% down to 29% is pretty, pretty awesome. That's a huge difference. And it's difference that speaks to not only your concentrated effort on the denials front, but also on the efforts that the CDI team makes every day, because assuming that the physicians are paying attention to the education and are engaged in theory their documentation should continue to uh to, should in, continue to improve so and hopefully exactly. if you do get the denial then you already have the information you need to then go fight it so right it's a it's a front end and back end process there for sure it is it is huge, Linnea, and we um, actually, on our queries, we have query templates too that, you know, that way everybody is using the same form whenever we send those to the to the providers. But we also have, um, one, of, one of my other teammates is um, head of the query team. And so she will put the uh, clinical guideline that goes with say it's an acute respiratory failure she'll put that clinical guideline all information also goes on the query template so the physician or the provider whoever it is answering that query can see the guideline right with the the query so that makes it so handy too absolutely and it brings it to their attention more than if they just had to go seek it out all the time. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's sort of an at-the-elbow approach, even when you're remote. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Exactly. So we're running up against time here. So as we close out our, our chat here, do you have any last advice for people who are just embarking on this type of project with their CDI team? Is there anything you kind of wish you had known before you jumped right in? I think our, my teammate did such a great job of researching everything. Um, Just know that it is not a one and done kind of thing. You always have to keep updating. Uh, We update our, we, we look at our clinical guidelines every April and May, or I'm sorry, April and not April and May, April and October to see if anything has changed in the IPPS um, changes that come out. So we look at that and then if nothing has, we review those every year just to make sure that nothing has changed. Uh, Sometimes it depends on, depending on what it is, we may go every um, two years, but mostly it's every year and we look to see, okay, this matches this, we're good on debility. Or this matches that, we're good on, you know, what AKI or whatever it is. Uh, so we make sure 
So make sure that, that you know, you, you've got everything that's going through. And don't reinvent the wheel. If you guys, if somebody wants to do this, please feel free to email me. I will send you a PDF of our guidelines. I am happy to share. You know, only thing I would ask is that you say, yeah, BJC Healthcare helped us out with this. <laughs> you know, just give us a shout out. Uh, you know, but but please don't start from, you know, don't reinvent the wheel. If there's if there's information out there, use it. Um, and like I said, I'm happy to help. I'm happy to answer any kind of questions. And, um, you know, you can do it. I know we have a big, huge group um, that are working on this, but we didn't start out as big as what we have it now. So it it will come. Uh, you just have to, you just have to be patient. Yeah, I think that's great advice to to end on. And thank you just so much, Karen. This has been, fun, first of all, just fun for me to chat with you anytime, but I hope that it has also been helpful for folks. We have run out of time here, but if our audience does have questions about this topic, you can email the Actus team at info at actus.org. If you are hoping to get in touch with Karen, you can email us and we'll help connect you, all that good stuff. And I will also put the contact email address in today's show notes, which are available on the Actus website and in your podcast app so that you can grab it right from there. And thanks so much, Karen. This was fabulous. Now it's time for the Actus Update, a regular segment featuring the latest news on what's going on inside the association. First, I would like to remind everyone that the call for committee volunteers is open until Friday, February 2nd. Actus opens our volunteer application twice a year, once in January and once in June, and we split the committees between those two periods. The current application period is for those interested in volunteering for first the Actus Advisory Board, which is Actus's governing body. They provide leadership, expertise, and an industry voice for our membership. If you have ever read a position paper, and that includes the Actus AHIMA Guidelines for Achieving a Compliant Query Practice Brief, a white paper, or listen to an Actus quarterly conference call, you have benefited from the board's expertise. Because the board is meant to represent the Actus membership, we do keep a strict mix of professional backgrounds represented in its membership. For our 2024 application period, we are seeking one individual who is a practicing physician, one person with an HIM background, and five individuals from other clinical backgrounds. The advisory board candidates will be subject to a membership vote in the spring as well, so do keep that in mind. Secondly, we are looking for volunteers for the chapter advisory committee. Folks who are on this committee are either current or past chapter leaders from all over the country, and they serve as the liaisons between local chapter leaders and Actus Nationals administration by participating on chapter leadership webinars, promoting best practice, and providing guidance to leaders across the country. And finally, we are looking for volunteers interested in serving on the resource library committee, which which is responsible for reviewing materials donated to the Actus community for publication in our resource library for accuracy, compliance, relevance, and effectiveness. You can find more information about all of those committees under the membership tab on the Actus website, and then you can apply using the link in today's show notes. 
My second update is that we are just a few weeks out from the early bird discount deadline for the 2024 ACTUS conference, which will take place April 8th through 11th in Indianapolis. Those who register for the event by Monday, February 5th, will receive $100 off their conference admission on top of any applicable membership discounts. So if you are planning to attend, don't wait to register. Make sure that you get that discount. The full agenda for the conference has been released, so if you want to check out those sessions, make sure that you click on the register link in today's show notes to to take a look at that agenda. Additionally, if you are looking to make a case for administrative support to attend this year's event, we did put together a justification letter template for you to use for free, which is also linked today, and that template just makes it really easy to highlight the value that the conference could offer to you and your organization for your CDI leadership. Even though the conference is always a wonderful experience, we are especially excited to be in Indianapolis this year because our conference coincides with the path of totality for the solar eclipse on April 8th, which is just an incredible way to start off our event. If you would like to know more about what we're planning in that regard, do make sure that you tune in for our free informational webinar on January 25th. I will also put that link in the show notes. I really hope that we see you all in Indy this year, and as always, everything that I just talked about will be linked in the show notes on the Actus website and in your podcast app. Finally, as a reminder before we close out, each Actus podcast episode offers 0.5 Actus CEUs, which can be used toward recertifying your CCDS or CCDSO credential for those of you who listen to the show in the first two days from the time of posting. To receive your 0.5 CEUs, go to the show page on actus.org by clicking on the Actus podcast link under the resources tab, and then just click on today's episode from the list on that page. Once you are on that page, scroll down to the recording of today's episode and click play. At the end of the video, as in all the way at the end when the timer gets to zero and you don't hear the music anymore, a link to the CEU evaluation will appear. Just click on that, take the survey, and your certificate will be automatically emailed to you upon submitting that brief evaluation. Those instructions are also laid out on the show page, so you can follow along there as well. Additionally, to ensure your certificate actually reaches you and does not get trapped in your organization's spam filters, we do suggest that you use a personal email address instead of your work email address when completing that CEU evaluation form. The cutoff for today's episode CEU is Friday, January 19th at 11 p.m. Eastern. After that point, the CEU period will close and you will not be eligible for the 0.5 CEUs for this week's episode. Though don't worry, we will be back in two weeks with another 0.5 CEUs. With that, we have reached the end of today's Actus podcast episode. We will be back in two weeks on Wednesday, January 31st with a new episode in our Talking CDI series, which is hosted by Actus Director of Programming, Rebecca Hendren. If you would like to receive reminders for each episode, please make sure that you are subscribed to our free weekly newsletter, CDI Strategies, which always includes a link to the new episode when it's available. You can listen to the show anytime on the Actus website or via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. All of the links that we discussed during today's episode will be available in the show notes. And as always, we would really appreciate it if you would take a minute to leave us a five-star review on your podcast app of choice to help others find our show. 
Our intro and outro music is Media Noche by Dion Key, and our ad music is Take Me Higher by Jazzar, both obtained from the Free Music Archive. If you have any suggestions for future guests or topics, please feel free to email us at infoactus.org. And until next time, take care, everyone.